Uh, Jesus didn't have a problem with people that's in the streets. He had a problem with religious people. How can I help anybody when I'm not even when I was not even able to help my own son? I would never do that. I would never do that. And I became that in a matter of minutes when they took my pain pills away. And I said, I'm not where I want to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. Ugh. This is Faith in Your Recovery. I am Randy Davis. Welcome to the battle. As we said in the intro, welcome to the battle. Once again, this is Randy Davis. Thanks for joining us here on Faith in Your Recovery. We're glad you're with us. We know you're going to uh, to walk away from these moments with more wisdom than you started with and hear some experiences you may not be familiar with, but hopefully they'll open doors, open hearts, touch change, and save lives. That's what we're about. All things recovery. Our guest today from Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Michael Barnes. Welcome, Mike. Well, thank you, Randy. I appreciate it. Well, we look forward to hearing what you have to say. We were just discussing the difference in the weather. It hit a little <laughs> warmer there near Denver than we're having here in East Central Indiana. But uh, we both made it through more winters than one. I'm sure we'll make it through this one. So, uh, Mike, go ahead and tell us Tell us a little of your professional background, mm -hmm. who you are professionally, and what your life's about professionally. Then we'll get into that personal aspect of things. Sure. Um, I've been an addiction counselor for 41 years, and I've been an, a, a trauma therapist for 31 years, and I've worked in residential addiction treatment and outpatients and psychiatric hospitals and have been uh, really kind of working on the forefront of merging trauma and addiction treatment together because so many of our clients have both of those issues. And uh, as a family therapist, um, for 31 years as well. Um, I've really been a student of what we call secondary trauma, and that is the trauma of people who love traumatized people. And so when I have a son that was hit by a car and um, when I was in school, and that traumatized us actually more as parents than it did our son because he was uh, he was five. And, and so I started really studying what, what's the impact? You know, everyone, everyone treats and focuses on the person who experiences the event, but their families are so impacted and um, it, it has life altering impact for the family members as well. And so um, as the chief clinical officer of a treatment center uh, called the Foundry in Steamboat, I can create programming that um, really allows our clients, the individuals in early recovery to work on both issues, but it also helps allows the families to do the same. It's a it's a telehealth program. It's done by Zoom so that family members from all over the country can um, kind of come into our family program to help them learn how not only to support their loved one, but how to how to support themselves. You know, how to have is this 
a cutting edge model? Uh, is there much out there on this model? Or are you kind of a pioneer, <laughs> or maybe not the pioneer, but at least early on in the game? And at this time, an interesting story, I found a paper that I had written in 1991 and I was cleaning out, you know, everyone's cleaning out their garage during COVID and, and I was cleaning out my garage and I found this box and it was a paper about how do we implement a more family focused addiction treatment program. And when I read the paper, I thought we're no further ahead now than we were, you know, 30 plus years ago. And so, um, I sat down that afternoon and I wrote the program that I, I, I told myself, if I could write any program that I ever dreamed of, just write the program and then I'll figure out how to get it out there. And so I sat down that afternoon, I wrote it, developed it. And um, uh, thankfully for me, my employer was like, well, just do it here. Let's, let's, let's put it into play. And it's been about four years. And it's been a remarkable addition to our program. What's one of the highlights of that particular program? One of the unique selling points about it? When family members can say, um, so our, uh, we, we kind of work with them to move away from we're a family with a loved one who struggles with addiction to we're a family in recovery from addiction and trauma. And uh, the research tells us, you know, families will often say, well, if, if my loved one would just get sober, then we could go back to normal. Well, and that's not accurate. What the research says is your loved one has a much better chance of getting sober if the whole family enters into a recovery process. And so, um, when I hear family members begin to talk about their own recovery, their own process of healing, um, you know, their own awareness that, well, I was traumatized way more than I thought I was by the constant struggles of our, you know, of our loved one's uh, addiction. And uh, rather than that blaming or, well, just, you know, it's, it's really about him or her. When family members start saying, wow, regardless of what happens, I have to be in recovery. That's the, that's the music to my ears. That's the lights on moment you hope for. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They recognize and realize where they're at in this instead of that one with the uh, substance use disorder, the addiction. Yeah. They recognize this has changed me. Yeah, that's the, and that's the thing is that realization of I have been making subtle changes that I wasn't really even aware of. I mean, it's a, it's a chronic illness, right? And so the person doesn't start as a chronic, uh, you know, with the symptoms of chronic addiction. They start with, with smaller, like less, uh, less dangerous symptoms. And the, the family makes these, very slow, very loving attempts to change so that they can help their loved one, but that over time, they, they've they created a newer normal, uh, like a, a new normal that, you know, they'll say, well, boy, we want to go back to normal. And it's like, well, that was, that was a long time ago that you've already created a new normal. Now you got to figure out how to create a newer normal where everybody's in recovery. 
And is that where your program hopes to take them is to that newer, healthier, normal? Yes. I I have experience as a pastor, mm -hmm. uh, 41 years of ministry. Sure. And I recall many times dealing with couples having marital problems. I just want to go back to the way it was. And my response is, no, you don't. You end up right back in here where you are. You want to go to a better place than you were to keep from having to face this moment, deal with this. Is that similar to what you're talking about? Yeah, here? very much so. And I, I think um, what, what we find is if, if the family decides that we're not going to change anything, we're just, you know, it's their job to get sober. And then, you know, they can just you know, fit in, fit back into the family, just like the puzzle piece that they are, is that the client. So the new normal that they create is actually really effective for living with an actively using addicted individual. It's not very well. It's not very effective for working with somebody who's in recovery. And so. And so family members that are newly in recovery will often try to be what their family needs them to be and what they need to be in, in their own recovery. And they, they relapse a lot in that, in that process or lapse. And uh, others finally realize, you know, I love my family. I want to be with them to whatever degree is okay or safe, but um, my real support systems are elsewhere. It's got to be a difficult, I would think it would be a difficult obstacle to help them recognize where that line is drawn, not even the old yeah. enabling, you know, are we, aren't we, that kind of thing, which has always been right. tough. But how do I deal with the new and still maintain personal integrity and in all of this? Where do I draw the lines now? I like what you alluded to there. It's not just about that client. It now becomes about the whole the whole community, basically. Obviously, you're talking the family dynamic, the family unit, but it that continues to spill over with everyone else because we have gained that behavior. I just said to deal with that person in active mm -hmm. addiction. Now, how do we learn behaviors that allow us to live with somebody in recovery? Because they haven't been there. Recovery is not the same as not getting into addiction. So this is an ever an ever rolling wheel, if you may. So yeah, it's yeah. interesting, and I. I and this would be interesting for the listeners. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I always talk to new families about is if, if the door swings open your front door and your loved one walks in, how long does it take you to realize that they're either intoxicated or they're sober? And the average answer is two seconds. And it's two seconds because... Because I'll ask them, well, that's kind of a trauma symptom, right? That's hypervigilance. And, and they'll say, yeah, but boy, if he's sober, our lives are going to look like this. And if they're intoxicated, they're going to look like this. And, and that level of hypervigilance is truly um, 
uh, and we can talk about some of the research I've done, um, but um, the longer families stay in this fearful fret, f fight or flight, the more controlling and hypervigilant they feel they need to be so that whatever the next crisis is, they can, you know, fix it. And, and then I asked yeah. the family members, okay, your loved one's been sober for a year and a half. And they're sober and they're working on recovery. And this front door swings open. You haven't seen them for a little while. And they're walking up the hall. How long before you think? I, I should probably check to make sure he's sober or she's sober. And you would think that in a year and a half of recovery, it would. And the answer is two seconds. Like, and I say to them, boy, if I'm your loved one and I've made all that change and all that growth and you're still treating me like the identified patient in the family, I'm probably going to have a hard time with that. And so that's the healing that is so often not done, but is so needed. And, uh, you know, in the name of your podcast with this issue of faith, that, that it's hard to have faith when your nervous system is on red alert all the time and telling you that I, I have to be the one that's in charge of keeping everyone safe. And, um, and I think that's part of the recovery process is refinding that faith, that ability to let go, trust, um, do your own work. Um, and, be there to support your loved one. That that idea of trust, uh, I get it from all sides. You know, that trust was broken so many times during the active addiction with the promises that weren't followed up or the I'm done's and tomorrow you're helping them again with the same situation. And I've always said, it's 18 steps up a 20-foot ladder. It takes one step to get down. And uh, trust makes it tough to climb back to the top again. But it's something we've got to continue to do. And uh, it's not going to be a quick fix by any means. Like you said, you get the same two seconds after 18 months of recovery. Somebody who's been clean that long, but there's always that thought, today's going to be the day they stumble and fall. And uh, we we seem to dwell on the negative sometimes much stronger and longer than we do the positive. And we just don't want to set ourselves up for another fall. You know, when, when clients... You know, as a therapist, clients will ask me at times, well, do you trust that I'm going to stay sober? And I always say the same thing is I trust you desperately want to stay sober. Do I trust you're going to? Well, you know, I know it takes time and I trust that you're going to make an effort, but I don't, I'm not going to make a statement that says I fully trust that you're never going to um, slip or you're never going to struggle. And I trust you'll do your best. And that's, you know, I think sometimes the client asking, do you trust me is a, is a trap. 
and, and I don't think it's a conscious trap, but it's a trap that is uh, like, I want to know you're there for me. I want to know that you're on my side. And I think that we can respond to some of those questions a little differently that are just as supportive, but also uh, with that understanding of, well, it's a chronic illness. And, you know, people have ups and downs with chronic illnesses, and I'm here for you in the ups, and I'm here for you in the downs. And we can't always so, be sure when the chronic illness is going to raise its ugly head, whatever the disease may be. And so uh, it, it's tough to be ready for the moment as the client, as the family member. And I'm sure, though professionally you have limits, you've still faced disappointments with certain ones who have, I can remember during my ministry again, there were couples that I married I thought would last three months, and they've lasted 22 years. There were couples I thought would be together forever and didn't make it three months. So I'm sure you deal with some of that same. And uh, yeah, go ahead. It's exactly the same. Well, I was going to say it's exactly the same. And, you know, I try not to get into prognosticating whether I think someone's sure. going to make it or not, because I've seen exactly what you just said. People that I thought, well, that guy hasn't done the work that we had that we thought he needed to do. And then you get a phone call four years down the road and they say, Hey, I was thinking about, I saw an advertisement or something. I saw you on a show or, or something. And I just wanted to say, hi, I've been sober for four years and doing great. And it's like, wow, that's man, what a gift that is. And then others that you think, wow, they really worked hard here. And then they, something happens and they really struggle. We never know about that possible trigger that's waiting around the corner. And uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm sure you have your educational background. Tell us about your personal background, your growing up years, your experiences, things that may have led you into this kind of direction. Yeah, I was a therapist since I was probably about five. Um, I think I think we get it naturally. I grew up in a family where there was a long line of addiction, long line of alcoholism. You know, the the Irish, you know, curse as many call it. And um, my mother um, was severely traumatized by the family that she grew up in, and uh, was. Uh, brought a lot of that with her into our family. And so, um, you know, you, we talk so much about attachment and, and you know, the connection to people. And I grew up in a family where I had to be either disconnected or I had to be, like, really anxious, you know, a, a constantly paying attention to potential you know, danger is the word, but it's, you know, that threat of being in trouble or um, her being upset about something. And she was loving and a lovely woman in so many ways. And I didn't know that I, I didn't know what trauma was as a kid. Um, and I thought, um, you know, like most kids, I'm probably not a very good kid. You know, I probably, uh, you know, uh, Judith Herman, who wrote a great book on trauma, said, 
the one thing kids know is that adults are supposed to take care of them. And if they don't, or if they're always mad at them, they can't blame the adult because if they blame the adult, they're kind of doomed that this person doesn't have the capacity to take care of me. So the problem has to be me. And so I have to do what they want me to do better. I have to um, study harder. I have to be more perfect and more thoughtful. And we end up, um, um, I say, I ended up being a human doing rather than a human being because I was always trying to figure out the right thing to do to be safe and to make people proud. And um, But what I never really learned was how to take like who I was. And so um, I, um, I struggled with drinking early in my life. And then I got a handle on it pretty quickly after um, my mother threw me out of the family uh, and said, and I'll always remember her comment was, I watched my father die from alcoholism. I'm not going to watch you die. From and so when you leave, you're gone. Don't come back. And um, I was still in, I was in college and I went back to school and I was mad and I, you know, went to see a counselor. And the question was, do you want to lose this family for the rest of your life or do you want to make some changes and start, um, you know, trying to heal? And that's that was really the beginning of my healing process. And, and as hard as it was to be asked, you know, to not ever come back it was probably the best thing she could have ever done. And um, when I walked in the house, I called my sister and I said, uh, and she said, man, I haven't seen you in forever. What, where have you been? And I told her the story. And she said, just walk in the house like you own it. Don't even act like you remember the conflict and see what they do. And my dad looked at me and he said, wow, I haven't seen you in a long time. Where have you been? And my mom looked at me and she said, did you get it worked out? I said, I, well, I think I got it worked out. I, yes, I hope. And she said, good. And we never talked about it again, ever. And so it was that kind of family that we don't talk about hard things. We didn't, um, we weren't very good at conflict resolution. And um, so I had to learn how to do all those things uh, pretty much on my own. And, um, you know, with the struggles of all of those things. So how many brothers and sisters? I'm the youngest of four. My okay. brother is 10 years older and I have an eight year old sister and a five year old sister or three year old sister, three years older sister. Right. Right. Who were you the closest with? None of them, really. I was okay. a, a real loner and, um, when I graduated with my master's, I left for Florida. I graduated from the University of Pittsburgh uh, with my master's, and I didn't go back very much. I was um, pretty um, intent on, I've got to do this myself. Um, you know, I, I don't depend on people. People uh, weren't very trustworthy to me. And um, as, a, as a young therapist, I had the benefit of working with really phenomenal other therapists and uh, lots of training and really began to realize my own need for healing. Uh, what that is it? 
let's say you had your three siblings there in the room with you right now. What is the one thing you'd like to say before them all? Well, I I actually just did this. I was home um, about three months ago, and I hadn't been home in years. And um, I said the same thing to all of them, that I, I did what I felt I had to do in order to grow up and to be who I was supposed to be. And I apologized for being a less than stellar sibling and not being there for the things that I should have been there for. But that, um, you know, it's, it's nice to, you know, I was really ashamed of it, to be honest with you. Like I didn't, I got, you get to a point where you don't want to go home because you don't want to face, I didn't want to face the fact that I've been living my own life very successfully, but not really having, I kind of lived in other people's fam, families at times, you know, in, in marriages and those kinds of things. And, um, I finally decided I have to go make amends. How did how did the three of them handle that? Uh, what was their the their response emotionally? The, the, it, it was way more um, loving, and um, there was immediate forgiveness. In fact, they were saying, well, there's no real reason to forgive you. I mean, everyone has to do what they have to do. And and I said, well, no, I, I need, I don't need you to forgive me because that's your choice. But I need to, I need to ask because that's what I don't do. I don't ask I, 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 for so much of my life. I just gutted it out and did what I needed to do. And it's so much of what the the families do. You know, that they organize around their the, the loved one and their addiction and um, help from the outside actually complicates things. So was it a better response than you had thought would come yeah, about? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very yeah, positive. I, I've, yes. I've, got, I've gone back three times since then. Okay. And, and really kind of getting back into the... Um, Rebuilding family, it seems yeah. like. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, how you said you've been a therapist since you were five, basically, <laughs> because of life's conditions and whatnot. Um, you're, you're in that professional position now. As a therapist, what what is the advice you'd give back to seven to ten year old Mike as he was going through life at that point? I have a tattoo on my forearm of the word perseverance. And that's how I've lived my life is you just keep, keep trying and you just keep doing it. And you, and you, 
recognize that there are going to be ups and downs and that I wanted that reminder to myself. And it would be the same thing that I would say to him is that, you know, there's going to, like, you're doing the best you can. And this is a really tough gig that you have of being the youngest in this family with the other kids being in college and gone and you're here alone and, and, um, and that you, you persevere, but start asking people for help. Like, that's what I didn't do. I isolated and I, you know, was an introvert and I was a good athlete. I played baseball and football and played football in college a little bit and, and, you know, I could, I could be an extrovert on the field, but I could not, um, I, in a classroom, I, when I was younger, I wouldn't raise my hand to ask a question because I didn't want to be uh, the center of attention. There were just so many things that, um, that isolation caused. And I see the same thing with families that, that, you know, that they've been so, like you talked about the the trust issue and how often it gets broken and, and that when it gets broken so much, you know, that you quickly begin to learn that I need to be, I need to trust myself and I need to be the one that's driving this. And that would be the one thing I would tell that kid is find a coach, find a teacher, find people, uh, you know, someone in the church um, that, and, and that th can support you. And, you know, we talk about it in recovery all the time, whether it's AA or celebrate recovery or whatever, um, whatever people feel the need for. And what I really like about celebrate recovery is that the whole family comes together and then they break out into their own areas of, for their meetings, but they, they come together as a family to a recovery process that is, and I, 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 I've been a big advocate of 12 steps and, and, um, you know, Al-Anon and all of that as well. But I wish there was more of a families anonymous or something along that line. I think there is actually, and I've never seen one, but uh, I, I've heard that there, someone started it. At least very similar, yes, yeah. that uh, gets at what you're talking about for certain. What What is the advice you'd give to folks today that have strong PTSD from their past experiences? Uh, how can they recover what that has taken from them? So, you know, over the years, you know, long before there was, a, there wasn't a diagnosis for PTSD until 1980. Before that, the military had, you know, shell shock and all of these other things that they called it. But the, there was always this sort of deviation of, is it a psychiatric issue or is it a physical injury of some kind? And I think we finally settled into, it's more of a physical injury. Trauma creates changes in the way the brain processes information in that we lose the ability to make the distinction between feeling safe and being safe. And so we, we always feel um, our, our threat monitor is, 
like our, our smoke, let's put this back, our smoke detector is really, really sensitive to any kind of threat. And that causes us to go into this autonomic nervous system, anxiety, fight or flight. And I think that the first thing that, um, you know, people don't understand trauma therapy as a developmental process, but the first part is safety, making sure that you are have a support system around you to create safety. And that's the one thing when I'm hypervigilant and controlling, the last thing I want to do when I'm trying to protect myself is to have a whole, you know, posse of support system because that's just more people to have to monitor. And so that idea of beginning to really look at how do I learn how to ask for help when I need it? How to say yes when I mean yes and no when I mean no, because as a kid in a like childhood trauma, saying no didn't mean anything. Said no a thousand times. Same things continued to happen. So um, really kind of learning how to set boundaries, but it, it has to do with managing that fear response first. And then once they can control that, and so mindfulness, um, there's all kinds of, you know, if listeners, I, I have a couple exercises that I use. If listeners were, would email me, I'd be happy to send them an email with some of these exercises to learn how to calm the nervous system down. Because once we can do that, then we can really start doing the processing of what happened to us. And... You know, there's a, a point in our anxiety when our the prefrontal cortex of our brain, all the all the blood is rushing off to fight and flight. And so, you know, having a conversation with our loved one who just came home, you know, intoxicated, or talking to them the next day, if I can't control my my anger response, I'm not even going to remember what I said. That, that part of our brain is is offline. And so we just sort of fall back into old thoughts, old patterns. And we have this map, a guy by the name of Peter Levine, who's a very famous trauma therapist, and a guy who's another guy that he worked with was a friend of mine. And the, this kind of map of how to understand how to keep the nervous system calm. And uh, our clients call it the marble map. It's like little circles on it that look like marbles, but they're really representing energy. And so that that would be the first thing I would tell people to do is well, a find a, a really good trauma therapist or someone in the you know, in their religious community that really understands things like mindfulness, and meditation yoga, those kinds of things, but they're at the root of the healing process. Everyone thinks that trauma is going to come back as a story. And that's not the case. It usually comes back as fear, or as re-experiencing of the traumatic And then uh, once we experience the same, so if, if I got hit by a red Mustang, my brain, every time it sees a red Mustang, 
will remember the trauma and trigger a trauma response. And it's unconscious and I don't have any control over it, but I have control over what I do with it and how I respond to it. And, and so learning how to manage that response then allows the processing of the story or the event in a way that we, we just can't do if we're constantly afraid. Just get too scared and bail from it. My dad was a, he was in the military during World War II. And that was back in the day. I always said he came home a prisoner of war. And I mean that symbolically, but he, he was every description of today's PTSD, shell shock, as you referred to it earlier, or any sure. other label you wanted to give it. But back then, that was a mental disorder, and we spoke of those things quite differently then. And I'm glad we're moving beyond that. As we start to wrap up here, Mike, I want you to be sure and tell the folks about your book. Tell okay. them how they can get their hands on it. You mentioned just a moment ago when you were talking about calming the nervous system, you have some methods. Give them contact information to get those, please. Go ahead and share those kind of things with us. Sure. Um, the easiest way um, is if you go to my website, which is www.dr m-i-k-e drmikebarnes.com and um, it has um, it has an area where you can send me a, an email a message and if you include your email address to that I'll send you the uh, materials that I have to kind of help you begin to calm your nervous system my book is really full of those ideas so this is a book I have a really good friend who's really good um, he's a really good family coach and he's really good at telling people what to do. And when I tell people what to do, I realize that the vast majority of people who ask when I tell them, don't do it because it's what there's a, it's hard. We're, we're traumatized in this process. And so um, enabling is a trauma response. Mm -hmm talk about that in the book as well that idea that you know everyone talks about enabling like it's not loving it's it's loving it's the most loving behavior but it's it, it's terrifying to not do it like everyone tells you to do and so that that idea of this book i, I told my friend um you're good at telling people what to do. I'm good at telling people why it's hard to do what you tell them to do. And so my book is really a, a, a deep dive into understanding how families fun, form and then how they change with the addiction, uh, what addiction is as a chronic disease and what the brain is doing. Um, in tr when we get traumatized, what's happening in the brain and why do we have these kind of triggers and symptoms that seem to come out of the blue. Show and us that book again, please. It's called When the Solution Becomes the Problem. Okay. Um, and why it's called that is that those subtle changes that families are making become a new solution that actually um, becomes a greater problem once the person starts trying to get sober because 
now the family's more programmed to a drinking person or a using person it than a recovery. Then, but we're not then, we're now. Yeah. How do we deal with this? Awesome. Yes. Awesome. Give us that website again, Dr. Mike barnes.com yes d-r-m-i-k-e-b-a-r-n-e-s.com all right listen let's wrap this up here one question the name of our podcast is faith in your recovery what's that title mean to you mike i think faith is the piece that gets lost for so many families when they're trying everything and it's not working and that um, in essence it's like they have to jump off of this really high diving board to trust that if you make these changes good things are going to happen and to trust your higher power trust God trust your your family members and that um Without that trust, then we get stuck in, you know, the old saying in family therapy is more of the same always results in more of the same. And it's the lack of trust to change that keeps the more of the same going. And so I think you're, the, the title is fabulous. It's, thank you, sir. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for your wisdom and knowledge sharing that with us. Folks, make sure you contact D-R-M-I-K-E. B-A-R-N-E-S dot com for Mike's book and to get some answers to how to calm your nervous system and I'm sure there are other helps and hopes there as well. God bless. Thank you for tuning in to Faith in Your Recovery. Our advice is stay in the battle. Amen. <laughs>